Welcome to IAQ Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. Hello, and welcome to IEQ Radio, Indoor Air Quality Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. This is Cyber Jockey Zach Slotnick and Radio Joe. Good day. Welcome to IAQ Radio. My name is Joe Hughes, and with us in the studio is Dr. Dietrich Weil. Today's show is brought to us by Microband Systems, the microbial management company at microbandsystems.com. And Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the indoor air quality industry. Subscriptions and advertising available at ieconnections.com. Today's special guest is Holly Bailey of Building Environment Consultants. And with no further ado, we're going to move into the microband trivia quiz from Mr. Cliff Slotnick, my normal co-host, calling in from Florida today. Cliff, are you there? We can uh, review the two that we have from last week that no one's answered successfully yet. Um, one is a scientific phenomena that has been scientifically documented to have knocked someone's socks off, and we're looking for what that is. We also had a disaster restoration trivia question, and we are looking for the two fire-related contaminants that are most destructive to metals. Uh, this week, because we happen to be down at this Diving Equipment Manufacturers Association, uh, we figured that we might have one or more scuba divers out there in the listening audience, so we kind of had a uh, pretty simple diving trivia question. Uh, if you were doing a dive, according to the U.S. Navy dive table using air, you dove to a depth of 119 feet, and you stayed there for 14 minutes, we'd like to know what your ending pressure group is. So did you hear that okay, Joe? I did hear it, yes. Let's continue to uh, move along here and talk to Dr. Wow. I've been going over some things that occurred at the, some presentations we were just uh, leafing through that were at the IAQA annual conference, looking at the conference proceedings, and uh, I noticed that Dieter's been leafing through and looking at a couple of the main thing of interest there, Dieter. Uh, quite a few things that would be of interest to me, but uh, just what Cliff said over there, Cliff, are you aware of the fact that we have under OSHA a deep-sea diving uh, standard? Yes. yes. That one was passed a long time ago, I think when Mort Cohen was the Assistant Secretary of Labor. But that is one of those not-so-well-known OSHA standards. There is a standard for diving. Yes. And I think they have different st standards for handling the air and compressed gases and oxygen and uh, other issues that relate to it as well. It's oh, absolutely. It probably came out of the commercial diving industry. Yes, it did. Yes, it did. I remember. I think I still was a student when that one was passed. Thank you, Dieter. We now have on the phone Hollis Bailey, P.E., Holly is a principal in Building Environment Consultants, Inc. of Jupiter, Florida. Her and husband, Ron, are two of the most respected names in the indoor air quality industry. Ms. Bailey is also the past president of the Indoor Air Quality Association and a pioneer in the indoor air quality, indoor environmental quality industry. She is also the author of Fungal Contamination, a manual for investigation, remediation, and control. Welcome, Holly. I'm here, and I'm very glad to be on the show with you today. As I mentioned in the introduction, Holly is the author of Fungal Contamination, a manual for investigation, remediation, and control. Holly, I, I always want to call your company Bailey Engineering, and I noticed the name on the book is different from Bailey Engineering. Which should we use? Well, Bailey Engineering is our sister company, the original company, and Building Environment Consultants is the training company that we formed um, just in the last couple of years. Uh, you can use either one. Excellent. Now, what led to you and Ron getting so heavily involved in the indoor air quality industry, Holly? Well, we started out as design professionals um, at a point in time when air quality wasn't really a concern because there were very high ventilation rates in buildings. 
And uh, then the energy crisis came along, and we quit using so much ventilation air in buildings and uh, immediately started having problems with air quality. And as that progressed, uh, you know, we quickly learned that you had to account for all the chemicals that were being put in a building, and especially like new buildings where carpeting and adhesives and new furniture were all being placed into the buildings initially, uh, that you had to provide for some sort of ventilation to vent all of that out. And as time progressed, uh, we got into the late 80s, and EPA started talking about indoor air quality, and they created the acronym IAQ, and suddenly there was a name for what we'd been working on. <laughs> suddenly there was a name for it. I, uh, I spoke to someone yesterday, Holly, that has been cleaning up mold for 25 years, and now he needs to become a certified mold remediator. Suddenly, there is a name yep. for it. Yeah, that's always funny when that happens. Now, um, when you were working doing the design and then had to cut back on these ventilation rates so drastically, did you expect this to cause problems, or is this something that we just learned from our errors? Um, it's something that you basically learn from, you know, the, the changes that are made. I don't think anybody realized exactly how low the ventilation rates uh, were going. You kind of realized there was going to be a problem when you realized that the ventilation rates that we started using during the energy crisis were based on the rates of air changes that were needed in submarines to maintain life. So at that point, if you've ever been in a submarine, you realize there were going to be odor issues. Okay, so these were based on just getting enough ventilation into the building to handle odor issues and maintain life, not necessarily comfort or quality of life. Right, they were based on renewing the oxygen supply uh, for each person. Holly, can you give our listeners an idea of how dramatically these rates have changed? Uh, sure. We, in the uh, 70s and 60s, buildings generally had 20 to 25 CFM per person. Uh, I'm talking about like office buildings, schools, places like that. And uh, in the late 70s, early 80s, those dropped down to 3 to 5 CFM per person. Dramatic. And then later on in the 80s, they bounced back up to about 5 to 7 per person, and that was an effort to try and adjust so we didn't have so many odor issues. Still weren't worried about contaminants, though. And now we're back up to almost 20. And we now have a more complicated formula for determining these air changes. Can you explain a little bit about the 2004 ASHRAE revision and how it handles these, this issue? The concept now is that we understand that there's uh, a, a quantity that's required for each individual person. And we also understand that there's a quantity required for the materials within the building, uh, including like furniture, computers, things like that. And so they've got these two different components, and there's a formula that you can use to adjust. Um, you, you can either pick the basic number, or you can use the formula to come up with a more refined number, which works great in your larger facilities because, you know, overall you can reduce your ventilation rates somewhat. Not a lot, but somewhat. Thank you for the background on that issue, Holly. The next question I have is what made you decide to put yourself through the marathon of writing the book, Fungal Contamination? And, and am I accurate in describing it as a marathon? <laughs> Well, uh, basically it was the fact that there was a total void in materials out there that were available to people. Um, we wanted to have something that we could help use to help our clients understand what we do and why we do it in mold and water damage projects. And um, there was also nothing out there to provide information to remediators that really gave them a complete picture of uh, what the workers in the field were supposed to be doing and why they were supposed to be doing it so that they could gain the necessary understanding to really do a, a great job out there on the projects. And it, that's really important because, you know, we all know that the success or the failure of a lot of these projects is really in the hands of the workers out there in the field. So having them understand what they're doing and why they're doing it is really crucial. 
Holly, where did you turn for additional expertise to help you write the book? Because certainly you have expertise which are very solid in the engineering and the ventilation area, but where did you, who else did you rely on? Um, well, most of the materials we used for the book we already had in-house uh, because we had been doing this work, the mold work for quite a while. And so we had gathered quite an extensive library and were using a lot of the materials. But I actually hired three researchers for a period of about six months who looked for anything and everything that they could get their hands on out there in the world of, that had anything to do with fungal contamination in buildings. And then we meticulously went through that material, filtered out the things that were not based on science, you know, that they were just conjecture, and then incorporated all of the things that had scientific basis to them. Um, and it was really kind of interesting, the, the areas of agreement and the areas of disagreement. And we, in the book, we outline the areas of disagreement as well as the consensus. So we, we didn't shy away from the fact that we don't have all the answers yet. Thank you. There is still quite a bit of disagreement on numerous topics, and we can touch on those as we go along. But first, I'm curious as to how long did it take for you to write this book? It seems like it would have taken at least a year or so. Uh, three years from start to end. Then when you finished, I assume there are still things changing, and that may lead to the point where you have to put out a second edition. Will you be putting out a second edition? Um, we are talking about that right now. More likely what we're going to do is do sort of an addendum uh, to update information that has changed. It was kind of interesting because the last six months of the process was really um, finalizing uh, like things like the index, and uh, we we used a professional editor who went through the book, and that took about a year of the process. But at the very end, I had been collecting things that I wanted to make changes in because of what was happening in the industry, and so we incorporated those final changes actually about two weeks before we went to printing. So it, at the date of printing, it was up to date. Um, there haven't been a lot of changes since then, but there are some changes that are getting ready to happen, so we want to be able to update our readers on those. Of those changes, I know you keep close watch on what's changing in the industry and what is about to change. What are the most important changes that you see coming down the pike, Holly? Oh, the most important one. Um, well, the biggest thing that's going to we need to update the book for is uh, the changes that are happening in S520. Uh, we just want to make sure that the readers have accurate information about where that standard stands at this point in time because it affects a lot of the people who are actually using the book, uh, meaning the remediators and then also building owners and managers who are hiring the remediators. So they need to all be up to date on that information. Um, as far as the actual science of you know, determining what molds are in buildings and the health effects with those molds, there really hasn't been a lot of change in those. I'm curious about your thoughts. I'm I'm not a gambling man. I've learned a long time ago that I'm a loser and that, uh, you know, there's no sense in me gambling anymore. But if you had to guess, uh, the IICRC S520 is being revised right now. I know they're due to meet in December to complete some of these revisions. And this is the uh, Institute of Inspection, Cleaning, and Restoration Certifications Professional Mold Remediation Standard, for those of you that aren't familiar with it. Holly, do you think the IEP, or Indoor Environmental Professional, will still be part of that standard, or will, be, will it become a thing of the past once the revision comes out? I think out? the concept of the IEP will definitely still be with us. Uh, whether they actually call it IEP or not, um, I actually think it'll be saying, yeah, I think they'll continue to call it that. Um, I, the controversy is basically um, surrounding the use of the terminology more than anything. Uh, but it's a necessary concept within mold remediation work, and so that concept's going to stick around. And I think everybody that uh, currently is, is 
arguing a little bit over the use of the terminology. I think they're going to be able to come to an agreement that's going to be a mutually beneficial agreement for everybody and for the industry. Oh, I have a question for you. Uh, you know, you'd mentioned the S520 and trying to keep your book in sync with it. As a professional firm that works in this area, uh, do you utilize the S520 as your primary resource, or do you utilize some other references as well? And you know, which has priority for you? Well, that's a great question, and it depends on the project. Um, the S520 is a great document for remediation contractors to use to help limit the scope of what they are responsible for and, and clearly define the scope of what they are responsible for. Um, as far as a specific document that we use, uh, we use our own document. So it's a combination of multiple documents. Uh, we refer to the S520. We also refer to some other uh standards that are out there, uh, for example, and, and some of them aren't exactly called standards, they'd be more like guidelines. Uh, we, we refer to techniques that are uh, mentioned in the bioaerosols book. We refer to some techniques that are mentioned in uh, the AIHA's field guide for sampling and things like that as well. And then point blank, our remediation uh, scope of services that we require from people We've spelled out exactly what we want, and it's actually a combination of these different standards and guidelines that are out there. So we've essentially created our own out of these other ones. Does that change from job to job, Holly? It does to a very limited degree. Um, for example, the extent of contamination makes a big difference in the scope that we are requiring from our contractors. But the general techniques that they are to use are going to be the same from project to project. There are three controversial issues that seem to come up in different documents and seem to be argued among both remediators and specifiers alike. I would like your opinion on each of these uh, on each of these uh, I, I guess terms. Uh, misting. Would you be pro and con misting? Would you be pro or con antimicrobial? Would you be pro and con the use of coatings? Oh, good question. Um, well, let's start with misting. Um, I'm against misting in general uh, because it has been shown that by adding moisture to, uh, and, and actually by the misting process itself, there's a puff of air that comes out, and so you can actually dislodge spores that are otherwise attached, and so you can actually create a higher level of contaminants into the air. Um, by doing that. And in general, when misting is proposed, it's proposed when you're not under full containment to start with. So I'm, I'm against it for that reason, because I think you're actually increasing the likelihood of, of having spores in the air instead of reducing it. And there, there's also a concern with some types of spores that, uh, for example, when it rains outside, there's after a rain, you will actually see an elevation in certain types of spores. And if those species of, of molds are growing within your building and you do the misting process, again, that's what happens within the building is you increase those amount of those spores that are in the air. So in general, I'm, I'm not in favor of misting. If you're doing it in a full containment atmosphere uh, or full containment area, then it really has no purpose. So you know, you're going to have particulate in the air anyway. That's the reason for the full containment, so it doesn't really serve any purpose there. The antimicrobials, those I am generally, we generally don't use them in buildings simply for the reason that you're adding another chemical to the environment. And since we are looking at total IAQ, um, anytime we add chemicals, we have to look at what that does to the total IAQ. And there's Generally, uh, people can react to almost any chemical. So the less chemicals we add to the environment, the better it is. Now, there are some situations where because of the materials involved or the configuration of the materials involved, you may not be able to remove 100% of, you know, you're going to do the best you possibly can but you may not be able to assure that you've removed 100% of the contaminants. And so in a case like that, uh, you may want to use an antimicrobial 
to increase the odds, so to speak, that you have gotten rid of the active mold growth. Uh, so there are times when antimicrobials should be used. Um, we recommend that it be very limited to, you know, and only to those types of situations. Coatings, it's kind of the same idea. Coatings are most effective when the vast amount of the microbial growth has already been removed. And again, it's more of an insurance policy than anything that if there's something that you were not able to remove, then you've encapsulated it. So in general, we don't believe that that's the way to go. We believe the way to go is to remove it so, because then you've removed your allergens and everything with it. But there are certain situations where um, sometimes it's a financial thing where um, the process that it's going to take to 100% remove the microbial growth is going to be very expensive, and the gain that you're going to get from that regarding health isn't going to be huge. So in those cases, it might make sense to put a coating on there and to encapsulate whatever is remaining after you've already done the cleaning. Holly, I, I understand that you've been involved in some pretty high-profile projects and that some of them were involved with litigation as well through no fault of your own. But i um, curious, how does that affect the way you, you handle projects in general now? Um, well, we really prefer to work on projects that are not in litigation, and I'm sure you guys can appreciate the fact that um, when, when projects start going into litigation, there's often a kind of a halt on any um, effective uh, activity, <laughs> and things just sort of come to a screeching halt. And we know with microbial growth, that doesn't help anything. I mean, the quicker you handle the microbial growth, the better. Um, on IAQ projects in general, it's not good to leave people in conditions that are not healthy for them. So we would much rather be able to move forward on correcting the issue, um, getting the people into a healthy, healthy environment, and then if they want to take it to court, okay, great. But yes, we have been involved in some projects that were, I don't know if you'd say high profile, but they made the news in Florida anyway. And I guess dealing with those, it makes you really aware that you must be able to support your decisions based on good science, not on fears of people or on guesses or on uh, what we would call anecdotal evidence, but on good, good science. And the other thing is that we really need to be properly informing people and sticking to the facts of what is really known and not not guessing on things. If we don't know, just say we don't know and then do what research you need to to find out the answer. But a big thing that we see with with some consultants that starts to cause problems is when their answer changes based on which side they're on. You can't do that. The facts are the same, you know, and the facts are the facts, so the answer should be the same. And a lot of times the biggest, disappoint, or big, biggest point of disagreement um, is not really what conditions existed, but what caused them. And the laws of physics, chemistry, biology, they're all pretty established. And if you understand them and reduce the issues down to the basic level, you can almost always come to an agreement with an opponent who also understands those laws. So if you can, if you can get it down to the laws that rule nature, then you're going to be in a pretty good condition to come to agreement with everybody and then really be able to find a resolution. I, I seem to recall a photograph in your book where you were suiting up with or some, one of your group was suiting up with about six or eight or ten attorneys and uh, you were all getting ready to go into containment. Can you tell us a little bit about that particular picture from your uh, fungal contamination book? Um, yeah, um, that was kind of an interesting project. That was a public safety building up in Seminole County, Florida. And uh, they had, the building was one year old, or just not quite one year old yet, and had asked me to come in and take a look at some situations they had going on in the building and help them figure out if they had a problem or not. Um, they did have a problem. They had moisture that was coming in through the exterior walls of the building, both in water form and in water vapor form, and they had mold in the vast majority of their external, of their exterior wall systems. Um, so in the process of 
helping them figure out how they were going to resolve this situation. Uh, you know, a bunch of attorneys got involved and everything. And uh, they decided that we, we had told them we wanted to actually remediate one room with a specific window style in it and to be able to investigate all around that window to find out why was it leaking around these windows and what other sources of moisture were there. And um, the day that we showed up to do that remediation in that room, we were greeted by 20 attorneys who we had no idea were going to be there. And uh, they basically said, you can't do this unless you let us watch. And we said, well, okay. So here's the paperwork you guys need to sign to prove that your respirator fit tested and you're capable of going. <laughs> and we made them comply. We actually, um, three of the gentlemen actually had medicals with them and had respirators that they had been fit tested for. Um, however, two of them had facial hair, so we tested them, we fit tested them right on site to verify that they could pass, and by golly, they both did. I was absolutely amazed. So those three attorneys actually got to go inside containment with us. Um, the others, we we had to redesign our remediation area, and we actually created a secondary viewing vestibule, and we required all of them in the viewing vestibule to be suited up anyway um, in case there was any problem with the containment area uh, because there wasn't going to be adequate space for everybody to get in and out you know, on a, on a speedy methodology or anything. So we required them to be suited up, but they remained in the viewing area that was uh, totally isolated from the containment area. So it was, it was quite an interesting day. I bet twenty attorneys at let's see two to three hundred dollars an hour. How many hours were there? <laughs> I, I exactly. Bet the, uh, added up real quick. And, yeah. Um, the fix on that, I've I've been asked. You know, a lot of times that's a problem. You have an exterior uh, cladding or an exterior of some type that's leaking, and then you have the um, problem of you know how do you how do you remediate that? You know, if it's behind a brick wall, do you tear out the brick wall? Do you get at it from the inside? I mean, what what did you do in this case? Well, it actually was brick walls in this case. Um, it it was the structure was actually concrete block with brick facing, um, and then on the inside there was drywall, and the drywall was affected by the moisture damage and mold damage, so most of the drywall needed to be removed anyway. Um, I, it wasn't 100% of the drywall that needed to be removed, but it was, uh, I would guess, probably 60% of the exterior drywall. And um, But by removing that drywall, we were able to clean the wall cavity, um, but we were also able to observe many areas where the, the uh, air gap or the air cavity that is between the block and the brick was actually... In uh, it, it was actually directly in the path of the air of the wall cavity. So basically those two wall cavities, the one between the drywall and the block and the one between the brick and the block, they were connected in a lot of places. Um, and, of course, the one between the brick and the block is not meant to be airtight. But the block was supposed to be airtight, you know, and, and that was supposed to be what separates the outside air from the inside air, and it wasn't complete. And so there were a lot of voids where the outside air and the inside air were actually communicating with each other. Caused a lot of problems. Overall pressures in the building, uh, was it negative inside, and they're therefore pulling this air into the building? or? Well, that's it, a great uh, question. Um, most of the building was negatively pressurized uh, significantly. There were a couple locations where it was positively pressurized, and it was very interesting because we had very few problems in those areas. Hmm. Dr. Wall, I understand. Uh, I think you may have a question over here. Well, not a question, maybe a comment, and it has something to do with ventilation. You just mentioned it. Uh, you, I'm, I'm sure you know that ASHRAE has... Uh, suggestions to pressurize or bring in fresh air even into residential buildings and I think that's an excellent idea and uh, I have heard and discussed that with a couple of people in Europe 
and even in England, they brought in a very small amount of air, but 24 hours a day, something on the uh, 15 CFM or something like this, maybe 10 CFM for a whole house. And apparently things turned out to be, I mean, the indoor air quality was improved. People didn't have asthma attacks and, uh, and, and, and. So I think that is an excellent idea, and you just mentioned it, that where you had positive pressure in the building, you didn't have as many problems as in the other ones. And I think you know, to pressurize something, I can control that. I know what I'm doing. If I just put a negative pressure on there, well, it comes through every nook and cranny, and just like you described, it comes, the air in the building comes, it's sucked in through areas where you probably don't want it from like a crawl space or the spaces that you described uh, between the veneer and the other building structure. So I, I think that is a good idea to go into that direction. That, that is interesting, Dr. Wow, and I agree with you, although I'd, I'd like Holly to comment, if possible, on the little bit of controversy about bringing in outdoor air in the part of the country she's in where you have this hot humid climate and i'm curious what your thoughts are on that holly well yeah there's um there has been and one of the problems is because with your air conditioning systems you know they they work periodically as far as the compressor for the cooling aspect and um it's a known fact that if you run the air conditioning system fan in the constant on position uh, and your compressor is cycling on and off in warm, humid parts of the country and especially in moderate uh, but very humid parts of the country, your relative humidity inside your building can run as much as 10 to 15 percent higher than if you have your interior fan in the cycle position so it only is on when the compressor is on. And so, so we immediately have an issue um, of relative humidity in the space just by the function of the operation of the system. But then when you add in the idea of introducing outside air into the home, uh, you have to be very careful about the method you use to introduce that outside air. Because if you introduce the outside air independently, like with a fan so it's forced independently of the operation of the system, then there's a large percentage of the time that you're bringing in the hot, humid outside air or the cool, humid outside air into the home, but there's no dehumidification happening because the cooling coil's not active at that point, um, which that's not a good, uh, good situation to have. The other part of it is uh, if you don't use a forced air fan to bring it in and you just have a duct that goes from the return plenum of the system, of the air conditioning system, and you're counting on the negative pressure created by the air handling unit fan to draw in that, that air, then that air is only coming in at the points in time when the air handling unit fan is operating. So at that point in time, um, if we want to look at ASHRAE, a lot of people are going to say, well, I have to run my fan in the on position. Well, now we're getting an automatic increase of relative humidity in the home of 10 to 15 percent, plus the additional relative humidity from the moisture we're drawing in from outside. So our homes are going to be running at a much higher relative humidity. And, of course, we know that's not good for air quality either because we know the higher the relative humidity, the more likelihood of things like dust mites and of actual mold growth inside the house. So there's, there's a bit of a catch-22 in the environment we're in. Um, I agree that it's a wonderful idea to bring the outside air in, and it's always a great idea to keep the building pressurized and the home pressurized, even if just ever so slightly. But we have to be very careful and very wise about exactly how we do that. And uh, most likely, we're going to have to add a dehumidification system to the home to be able to accommodate that. Holly, what's your opinion of this tool time Tim concept of oversizing the tonnage on the air conditioning thing? Do you think it's a good idea or not? Oversizing is a terrible idea. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, we see a lot of problems in Florida from oversized air conditioning systems. 
Uh, it shortens the run time on the system, so you get much less dehumidification out of the system. Um, at the same time, you have um, you you don't need the capacity the vast majority of the time, and so you're not only um, oversized at your peak capacity, but you've just magnified the amount of oversizing the rest of the year. And you have to remember that um, the peak capacity that air conditioning units are generally sized for really only occurs about 3% of the time in the entire year. So you're automatically oversized the rest of the time anyway. Thanks for making that important point. And thanks for bringing that up, Cliff. Now, what I'd like to do, Holly, for a moment is move on to another subject area, and maybe if you would, you could take a moment and reflect back on your time as president of the Indoor Air Quality Association. How long were you the president? Uh, I was president for two years. I was on the board for, gosh, almost 10 years. Oh, my goodness. You have you've served your time. <laughs> <laughs> that, uh, I've been there going on one into my fourth year now here and it's just uh quite a bit of uh quite a bit of i guess you have to really be committed to it and obviously you were and uh you were in there from pretty much the very beginning weren't you uh well i was in there from the time that we started going uh from a for-profit association to a non-for-profit association i had been involved for about a year before that and that process took us uh, almost two years to actually change it over. And then uh, at that point, then we developed the Board of Governors and everything, or the Board of Directors, excuse me, and went on from there. And what year was that? Um, just ballpark, I know it's... President, or that we changed from not profit When, or, when we changed profit. over. When it changed uh, over. Oh, gosh, let's see. This is 2006. Um, well, I noticed we're going to be having our 10th annual meeting next year in 07, so it would have been about two years before, so it was about 2004, 2003, okay. 2004, somewhere in there. Well, oh, I'm, excuse I'm me, curious. not 2000. I'm sorry, 1992 or 1993, 1994, somewhere in there. What are your thoughts about the unification and consolidation of IAQA, the IAQ Council, and IESO, the Indoor Environmental Standards Organization, Holly? Well, I got to tell you, it's a long time, been a long time in coming. Charlie and I had some conversations about that back when I was president, and we decided it wasn't the right time at that point in time to join forces. And I think it's been, a, you know, a, a really neat thing to see that that has actually happened now. I think they've got a wonderful opportunity to really kind of mold the IAQ industry as we go through kind of a maturing process of the whole industry. And, you know, I think the associations are, they're not competing associations as far as what they do and what they do best. Each one of them is unique. And so that works together really well. And yet at the same time, it doesn't restrict any of the associations from working with other associations as well. So I think it's really awesome. With the Indoor Environmental Standards Organization, IESO, now having their ANSI accreditation, where do you feel the most need for new standards exists? Oh, boy. Um, I've got a list of about 30. <laughs> Let's see. <laughs> Yeah, I think what I would really like to see them focus on right now is um, standardization of some methodologies. For example, testing methods in, you know, to determine if you have mold in a residence or in a commercial building. Developing some standards that really address a across-the-board methodology that is a good general methodology. Not the specializations that you need for specific circumstances, but just a good general methodology. And that would include the testing method as well as the analyzation method that would go with that testing method. And then this, a similar type thing for dealing with contamination on specific kinds of materials, developing some standardization there. I think those things would be really helpful across the board in the industry and take a lot of the guesswork and confusion out of it. The the other things that I have are more of long-term, including some research and stuff that would be required to 
to develop, well, for example, everybody wants threshold limits for contaminants, especially like molds and stuff. And I don't see that as being possible for many, many years to come because there is such a lack of standardization and so many other things that need to still be researched to be able to determine what those threshold limits would be. So I think IESO could really be instrumental in helping refine our industry so that everybody's more focused in the same direction on those by standardizing things. I think uh, Dr. Wow can probably sympathize with your concerns there as uh, one of the pioneers in the asbestos industry, Dad Dater, what, what do you think? Uh, well, I, I, I couldn't agree more. It, it just doesn't make sense that everybody has his own method. I uh, counted asbestos fibers when it was not sexy. And, uh, of course, my method was the best in the world. And then I compared that to the methods they used over at NIOSH and other universities. And it just didn't make any sense to have you know, five, six, seven different types and what magnification to use. In fact, we have the exact same problem right now. You know, which uh, medium do we use to grow uh, uh, molds? Is this one better? And I hear from mycologists, oh, this one is the best and this one is the best. And with the spoil traps, um, let us assume that they all have the same collection efficiency, which is probably not going to be the case. Now, do we uh, do it with oil immersion and a thousand magnification? I know some people use high dry, which would be about 663 max or 630. Uh, some people use some staining techniques uh, to visualize uh, the mold spores. Uh, that all doesn't make that doesn't make any sense whatsoever. These guys ought to have lunch together and uh, compare their methodology and agree on one, then at least we can compare apples with apples and oranges with oranges. Exactly. Okay, I was wondering if you saw any movement toward that, Polly. Um, In general, no. Uh, I I hear people say that they would like to see something like that, Uh, and some of those are are people who are in the laboratory uh, portion of the industry. But I don't really see any organized um, activity that is moving in that direction. Well, I think it has to be legislated. Uh, I mean, it, uh, otherwise it's not going to. These laboratories, for whatever reason, they don't give up their methodology. It's a pain in the neck. They have uh, experience with that, and they're not going to do it, you know, and no. say, oh, yeah, we use all the ABC uh, labs method from now on. Like I said, I think these guys ought to have lunch together. I really enjoyed spending a little time with you at the IAQA conference, Holly. And for those listeners that stopped by the booth, we really appreciated that as well. What I'm interested in uh, with respect to your experience there, Holly, is what were the best presentations? What's new and exciting in the world of IAQ? Oh, well, um, there were, I guess, two things that I – one was – probably the most interesting session, and that was the effects of daily living activities on indoor spore aerosols. Um, I thought that was a a real uh, effective, I guess, presentation of, um, you know, what we all suspect. We all know that activities in a house are going to affect these spore levels, but, you know, here we've got data that actually shows it. And uh, so I think that was a real nice presentation and and gives us a little bit more to go on. Um, The one that I I think was just huge as far as impact uh, was Claudia Miller and Carl Grimes. I think they did a wonderful job of, you know, expanding the our ideas of you know what's going on in our industry and the effect of indoor air quality issues on people's health and how to help quantify that a little bit. I've talked with Claudia quite a bit about that particular topic, and I mean it's it's not real useful yet as far as working with physicians and stuff because they don't have a clue, they don't understand, but I think we really need to encourage Claudia and her efforts to spend more time with physicians and help them understand that these things really are real um, to some degree. You know, they, It's not necessarily to the degree that some people would like it to be, 
but that there is something there, and we need to spend a little more time exploring those things on the medical side of it so that those of us out here in the field working in buildings can do a better job of making sure spaces are healthy for people. Could you go into a little more detail, Holly, on on Dr. Miller's presentation and the tool that she uses to help us or help investigators that are working with these sensitive people? I, I don't recall the name of the tool. Yes, it's called Queasy. Um, it's that, and that stands for the Quick Environmental Exposure and Sensitivity Inventory. Um, and and her basic premise is that. People have symptoms that are uh, related to something that is going on in their body. And the old concept that medicine has gone by forever, well, not forever, but, you know, for the last hundred years or so, is that infection is what causes disease. And so if you don't have an infection, if you don't have um that actual the the actual reactions going on in your body that result from infections, then you essentially don't have a disease. And yet we know that uh, almost every one of us has experienced sensitivity issues where something that previously never bothered us to be exposed to um, an environment or allergies things like that suddenly we start having reactions to something and start feeling miserable because them because of them and it's kind of a comfort issue that we feel miserable for most of us now some people it's actually asthma and things like that but um, for example with asthma there's not an infection and yet is it a disease so there's there's that kind of separate area of medicine that's been hard for physicians to deal with and define and this queasy tool that they've come up with is a way of uh, patients being able to answer a series of questions and then graph them on this little graph. But that series of questions helps you to be able to compare how do I feel now or how do I feel when I'm in this environment or exposed to these things versus in this other environment uh, with a, or with a lack of exposure to something. And you know it's not a it's not a um, foolproof thing by any way, shape, or form. But instead of having relative terms like I'm warm or I'm cool or I feel miserable, well, how miserable is miserable? And so this is just simply a way of starting to be able to build a comparison. Just it's very much like doctors do with pain, where they give you a scale and they say, where are you on this scale as far as pain? They, they're just trying to find out, is this making you feel better or not, is, is really what it comes down to. But they're trying to give you a way of measuring that, and that's, all, that's what Queasy is really doing. That reminds me of two quotes that my wife actually, she loves these quotations, and she gives them to me from time to time, and they actually quite often uh, fit right into what we're discussing. One is, you know, one of my favorites is he who ignores history is doomed to repeat the failures and mistakes of the past. The second one that I'm, I'm looking at right now, I'm wondering if anybody can tell me out there, maybe we could add this to the trivia questions there, Cliff. But this quote is a rather old quote, and it goes, illness does not come upon us out of the blue. They are developed from small daily sins against nature. When enough sins have accumulated, illness will suddenly appear. If somebody can uh, text message us in, the uh, author of that quote, uh, maybe the microband systems folks will be kind enough to send out another present. What do you think, Cliff? Oh, yeah, we're, we're easy, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> and I love your wife, so I have to do whatever she says. Oh, that's right. I forgot about that. Now, I thought it just fit in nicely with what Holly was just talking about, that, you know, first of all, we sometimes don't learn from the past, and um, this is a rather old quote, and it uh, basically is saying the exact same thing that Dr. Miller said in her presentation, and uh, I think that Holly did a great job of summing it up for us. Holly, before we go, we always like to ask um, our guests, is there anything that um, tips or you know information or advice that you would like to give consumers who may be listening to the show? Um, I think 
my best piece of advice is that a good old-fashioned spring cleaning each year uh, of your home with your windows open and cleaning absolutely everything um, can greatly help the indoor air quality in your home throughout the year. I see Dr. Weil smiling over there on that one. Well, I have to wait until spring to do that. <laughs> but the, the the common sense of it is just uh, oh, undeniable. Absolutely. Okay. And the other question we always like to ask, is there anything that you would like to add that we didn't cover here? Um, golly, I don't think so. You guys covered a lot of ground. We we did, and we really appreciate you hanging in there with us and uh, assisting us with covering that. And lastly, how can listeners, first of all, contact your company? And secondly, how can they, you know your company, and how can they get a copy of your book? Well, they can do both the same way. Uh, we have a website called themoldmanual.com. And they can go to that website. They can get information about our company as well as order the book right there on the site. And that book is also one of the uh, one of the texts that uh, the new council certifications um, use as one of the texts that you are supposed to be familiar with and understand before uh, testing for the CMR or CMRS program. And uh, I believe also they're using it in the CIE program now, Holly. Is that correct? They are, and um, you can also get continuing education credits by reading portions of it and then going online with them and taking a, a test that they have online. Speaking of continuing education, you can also get continuing education credits by listening to IAQ Radio and then emailing me at joe.hughes, H-U-G-H-E-S, at com. We'll send you a little quiz. You answer the questions on that quiz and send them back to us, and you can get yourself uh, certification renewal credits. We do have a little bit of a, a slight fee for that, but helps to pay the bills here at IAQ Radio. Well, first I want to thank Holly Bailey for joining us. It's been uh, a very interesting, and uh, I've had a great time talking to you once again, Holly, and thanks for being here. Oh, it was great talking with you. Okay, and uh, secondly, I, I really want to... Uh, Thank Dr. Wow for sitting in this week in the studio for Cliff. Anytime, anytime. And uh, Cliff, for taking time out to uh, pull yourself away from, I know, your other passion in life besides the uh, indoor environment and uh, restoration, really, and the uh, manufacturing business, to pull yourself away from the diving show for a little bit to help us out. I uh, really appreciate that. We're actually working down here, Joe. We're trying to sell infection control products and so on and so forth. So this is a work thing. This isn't a business thing. And tell Dieter not to get too comfortable in my chair over there. <laughs> and by the way, the weather is gorgeous in Florida right now where he's at. Yeah, terrific. It's actually beautiful here today, but tomorrow the rain starts. This is uh, Joe Hughes saying thanks to everyone involved, and uh, please come back and join us next Friday at noon for the next broadcast of IAQ Radio. This has been another IAQ Radio production.